You're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Kuroi Hawkins. Coming up... Surely they can have a conversation as a Pacific and Māori bloc to come up with a solution for the overseer situation. New Zealand government MPs urged to act on petition to pardon overstayers also. Uh, for that, we're still here in Tonga and hopefully things will uh, get better. Tonga's Prime Minister is hoping 2023 will be a better year for the kingdom. And later on... It's kind of funny because I saw the article uh, recently that said better and then I thought, oh, I didn't like that word so much. Ahead of this year's Davis Cup qualifiers, we ask 41-year-old Pacific tennis star Brett Bordenay about the secret to his longevity in the sport. Before all that, a brief news update. Voting has now closed for the 2023 national election in Tokelau. Our correspondent in Nukunonu, Elena Pasilio, was at one of the polling stations today. She spoke with our reporter, Lydia Lewis, who's been covering the developments. Vote counting has been progressing at a snail's pace due to poor internet in Tokelau. A government spokesperson says the results are expected to be posted on the government's Facebook page on the evening of the 26th or the 27th of January local time. Everyone couldn't fit inside the Talikilangi, so some people were outside. And um, yeah, I think people were just rushing to go home after their, their elections because it started raining. But yeah, I could, I'll say that um, it was buzzing with excitement. Um you know, it's important because everyone turned up here. There were 32 people that voted from home, like the elderly and the people in quarantine. Do you know when the votes will be counted and when yeah. they'll be announced? Soon. It should be soon. The only thing we're waiting on right now is votes from Nukunonu people in Samoa. And it's taking really long because the internet is just lagging. And so the votes are coming in, I think, one by one. But I'm not sure how many people are voting from Samoa. So we're expecting them by tomorrow morning at the latest? Two hours. Oh, two hours. And there's two people upstairs. So we've been sitting here. We've been waiting. (laughs) Two hours. And it's the internet. And yeah. And so there's two people upstairs at the printer. I think, yeah, and they were for policemen, um, just trying to print these, but it's taking really long because of the internet. Pacific community leaders in New Zealand are calling for swift action over an overstay petition that was launched almost three years ago. Pakilao Manase Lua believes it's time to establish pathways to residency for Pacifica overstayers, the majority of whom are Tongan. Pakilao says at the moment overstayers and their children are scared. He told Lydia Lewis he's disappointed in New Zealand MPs over their inaction on the issue. There's more than enough Pacific MPs in, in Parliament. There's about 11 there. Um, and with the 15 Māori MPs, surely they could have a conversation as a bloc, you know, a Pacific and Māori bloc, to, to come up with a solution for the overstayer situation. Um, and that's the disappointing thing is that there's so many of them, yet there's no traction, it appears, uh, on this issue. And we've been advocating for it for the last almost three years now. Is this going to end up being a major election issue? For Pacifica, I believe so, because it's, uh, it's tied in with the Dawn Raid apology. Apologising is great, but it's, it's not going to solve the situation for those that are uh, overstaying now, especially their children. You know, the children of overstayers are innocent party here because it's not their fault that they're here um, under those circumstances with a decision made by their parents. And and for whatever reason, you know, they could have been locked down here during the, 
uh, COVID uh, lockdown, and they've, they've, they're no longer, you know, seen as a a person here who's who's legally meant to be here. And that's the sad part is that they're missing out on on valuable services and things that they could contribute to uh, legally in terms of employment. Some of them are working already, and so I, I don't understand why the government can't see that. And can you please explain exactly what sort of cases you are talking about here? Sure, and, and like um, we're not advocating breaking the law, and we acknowledge the fact that um, people who came here and overstayed their visa, there is a, a number of different reasons why that might have happened. For instance, they might have been here during the lockdown, so they couldn't go back, or they were here on a, a temporary visa, and it made it, it was difficult for them to go back. And for in the case of Tonga, there's the eruption recently, so people are probably wanting to, uh, you know, find a better life. Uh, find a safe place and what better place in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And, and these are people who are often already working, you know. Um, we we do know there were people who were overstayers who were working frontline jobs while we were locked um, down in the, in the lockdown. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not here uh, taking away because they can't, they're not eligible for benefits or anything like that. And to survive, they have to work. And so some of them are finding ways to survive. They're paying taxes. So for those who are sceptical about um, helping them, I'd also remind them that we've also got a tight labour market. We're looking for workers, and many industries are crying out for workers. And these people are already here. Some of them are well settled. They have children. Surely we can do something about that. You know, we helped the Ukrainians when Russia invaded, and, and that didn't take too long. Why is it taking so long now? Tonga's Prime Minister, Seosi Sobaleni Huakabameliku, enters his second year in power after a rocky start to his term. The 52-year-old was sworn in as the 18th Prime Minister of Tonga on January 12th last year, just three days before the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcano, which would result in the displacement of entire island communities. Amid the recovery and rebuild, Hokawa Meiliku has also had to navigate the kingdom through its first COVID outbreak. RNZ Pacific's Finau Funua sat down with Hokawa Meiliku for a brief interview on the 12th of January as the kingdom prepared to commemorate the first year anniversary of the Hungatonga Hungahapa eruption. That day the eruption happened, can you describe it? It, it, it's one of those days. It was a pretty busy day. I, I had a few uh, community events because, you know, it's only about two weeks since we were in, uh, in government. So we were uh, still meeting communities, villages, churches. Uh, so I was, I was basically at home. Uh, it was, uh, we had a church uh, a community who actually visited us back in my place. Uh, when we heard uh, you know, this, those loud noises. Initially, we thought it was thunder, but then it turns out it was the volcano. We got some uh, notification that, you know, uh, it was an eruption. Uh, so we basically phoned up the whole services because people had to go. Uh, and then after that, you know, uh, it, it, it was scary, but at the same time, uh, most of my time I was just worrying about what's happening, finding out you know, what's happening here, who's affected, and you know, the scope of the problems and all that. Uh, but at the same time, I'm mindful that I'm there with my family. You know, what would be the best course of action in terms of whether we are evacuating or staying home? Uh, but it, that's what went through my mind. 
to spend three days without any communication. That must have been chaos. It was, but then at the same time, I mean, there was a lot of things happening. You know, we 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 sent out people to find out what's happening in, in uh, affected communities, especially the western side. We sent boats out to the islands when we found out that uh, you know, there was a, a tsunami, uh, and because of the lack of communication, we had to send patrol boats out to the other islands just to find out what's happening and see what we can do. To actually help uh, you know those affected communities, uh, so yes, uh, the, uh, we uh, we I think some of our efforts were hampered because we didn't have international communication. Uh, but at the same time, you know we had a lot of uh, things going on that kept us pretty busy. Uh, that yeah, it, it was uh, it was definitely eye opener when we start having uh, access uh, through some of the uh, embassies here, through some of the high commissions, uh, to, to actually see some of the photos of, uh, of what actually happened you know, from the outer space and so forth. Uh, but at, at, at those couple of days, it was more about, you know, finding out what's happening and working out our response, uh, making sure that families are safe, uh, relocating some of the islands over down here. So it, that, that kept us busy and uh, didn't give us much time to worry about other stuff. The decision to resettle the Hmong and Atata people, um, why was that decision made? It, it was considered that uh, those communities are especially vulnerable. Uh, and so the, the estate holder uh, with uh, the communities themselves actually decided maybe this will be the best course of action. Rather than rebuilding uh, in the islands, they said, okay, I'll build it in uh, these new, less vulnerable uh, places. What's the biggest challenge now, a year on from the eruption? What's the biggest challenge that Tom is facing? Well, it's, it's since we're, we're relocating some of the community, it's about. Uh, I guess uh, some of them are not used to where they are right now because I mean they grew up in the small, very small islands. Now they're in Tomatapu or in Eua. Uh So helping them get over that, you know, uh, building their livelihood, uh, you know, they, they, the way they live their lives is a little bit different in the other islands uh, than down here. So helping them uh, readjust uh, their way of lives to, uh, you know, to. The new environment they are in, I think that's one of the big, especially focusing on them. But on, on the higher level, the economic stuff, I mean, uh, rebuilding that we are reallocating some of our resources uh, to actually rebuilding not just houses but infrastructures and, and what have you. Uh, so that, that means that we are leaving some of our other priorities. Uh, so hopefully, we can, once we address some of what we're, uh, what we're doing for those affected communities, we can uh, address some of the other issues that we have to leave behind because we are reallocating resources. And at the same time, we appreciate uh, the assistance from New Zealand, Australia, and other neighboring counties. They came to our assistance uh, straight after, uh, providing not, not just food and water, but also uh, temporary building materials and whatever it is so that we can actually get some shelters up. Uh, for the affected families. Just one more question, the commemoration service, 
could you describe? Oh, sorry, the exhibition. Exhibition and well, I mean, the government have decided that you know we we it's basically uh, uh, an exhibition, you know, raising awareness, uh, especially uh, for for kids and uh, and and uh, on Sunday services. Actually, you know, thank the Lord that we're still here. Uh, and that's basically it. Uh, I think that uh, we will have uh, uh, acknowledged the assistance from uh, our various partners. But I think we, uh, the key event for us to actually uh, acknowledge that we're placing. And uh, through that, we're still here in Tonga. And uh, hopefully, that, that things will keep uh, getting better. Some Cook Islands tourism operators are struggling financially as they grapple with the country's holiday low season. This off-season, which started in December and will last until the end of February, is particularly bad. Flights from Los Angeles, which are no longer running, had previously bolstered tourism while it was quiet. Cook Islands Tourism Industry Council President Liana Scott says in January 2019 her accommodation was around 70% full and now it's just half of that. Caleb Fotheringham talks to her about the situation. Will everyone be okay? Will they manage to get through this? Or are some places really, really struggling? To be honest, I think debt levels plays a big part to that question. I think there's been some conversations with the banks about giving some leniency to mortgage repayments and those sorts of things. So I think that that certainly plays a part. It also increases stress levels for businesses. I would imagine that a lot haven't caught up from having almost two years of no customers. The biggest thing we don't want to see is another wave of Cook Islanders and expatriate population leaving after just getting back to business. I think that's the biggest fear for businesses is losing staff again and and going back to trying to get them back into country, the cost and the headache of doing that sort of scenario is something that we're all trying to avoid as a priority. Has there been any talks with government to help support tourist operators during this time? Um, There has been conversations, (laughs) but they have made it quite clear that the governments are not there to prop up businesses and that they have already supported as much as they can and they've got to watch their cash flow as well. They have indicated strongly that they will not be able to support in terms of wage subsidies and the like. Uh, They have offered to support with delayed payment terms on tax returns and those sorts of things, and that very much is a a one-on-one conversation between the business and and, and the tax department. That's all that's really been offered at this stage. But in saying that, look, they still have monthly conversations with um, private sector task force. So that's Tourism Cook Islands and Chamber. Traditionally, Cook Islands government, they have subsidised uh, LA flight. Is the tourism sector still hoping for a Los Angeles flight? I think it's been made clear that subsidised money has been uh, used for Hawaii, Rarotonga, and for Sydney, Rarotonga. 
I don't know the breakdown. I don't know the value of each of those. But there were a lot of conversations um, about what leg worked best for what money. And I understand at least for the next two years, there will not be a uh, Los Angeles Rarotonga flight unless anyone wants to fly it without a subsidy, <laughs> which is quite unlikely. So um, it's really important that the uh, Hawaiian Airlines puts the cooks on the map with North Americans. And also there is still opportunity with that Tahiti Rarotonga leg with uh, Air Tahiti Nui bringing potential passengers out of France. So you think the Hawaii flights and the Tahiti Nui flights, they'll all be able to sort of do the same job that this LA flight was doing effectively? No, I don't think it'd be able to do the same job, but I think what was proposed cost-wise made it not a viable option for the Cook Islands. Being able to fly from Sydney as well as Hawaii was better than just Sydney or LA. Tennis player Brett Bourdonnais might have passed the magical age of 40, but he's certainly not slowing down. In fact, the 41-year-old Cook Islander is part of the Pacific Oceania team heading to Barbados to compete in the Davis Cup early next month. Craig Stephen asked Bourdonnais how he keeps going. I mean, you're 41, but you're probably uh, your results are getting better and better. <laughs> how do you manage to, <laughs> to play so well at, uh, at that age? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because I saw the article uh, recently that said veteran and I thought, oh, I didn't like that word so much. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 41 and I feel that in the recent years I've actually, my tennis has gotten a lot better. I've, I've, you know, I gave up drinking, I've dropped a bit of weight, I've got fitter, so I'm moving much better on the court and it, it all it all just sort of come, come well together. You know, I, I think the stat there that was shown was, the last four years, I think it was, I'm sort of 13 or 14 and two. So um, it's been a good run for me. And I, I definitely think helping get fitter over the recent years has, has really sort of helped me just a lot lighter, obviously, on my feet, um, less sort of aches and pains. And um, obviously with, with the years and experience, you know, this is my 19th or 20th year playing Davis Cup going into it, obviously the, the experience helped quite a lot uh, over the years. You know, I, I thrive now under the pressure, pressure situations, which generally it always comes down to the doubles um, being sort of the deciding match most, most ties. So, yeah, uh, again, you know, this year feeling confident going in. I think we've got a good chance against Barbados. Um, then, then number one guy is sort of ranked 800 in the world. And Colin is obviously a lot higher, uh, so so I think we're looking pretty good. Okay, so presumably Colin Sinclair, and I think is is it Clement Mengi who's play in the singles, and you, and you play with Colin in the doubles. Yeah, I think uh, generally what happens when we get there, our, our captain Emmerich will sort of decide the lineups. Um, but I mean, yeah, it's it's sort of the the unquestioned position is obviously Colin with his uh, ATP ranking. Um, will be our number one, and generally I do play the doubles with him. Uh, we've had a, a very good um, history with our doubles over the years, so uh, I think that's the most likely outcome. And then for the number two singles, I think they would be definitely looking between Clement and uh, Gillian from Tahiti. 
uh, with our two boys sort of in that number two position. Um, and then, yeah, again, it, it also comes down to, you know, depending on what the scores is after the singles, um, if Colin's feeling fresh and ready to go, he'd jump in doubles. Otherwise, we look at who else I could probably be playing with. Um, hopefully that I am the one playing in doubles, of course. Mm. We all decide once we get there. Yep. Um, you're obviously, um, you've been in this the circuit for, well, you said at least 20 years. So, I mean, you must obviously enjoy it and love the travelling and just the playing and everything else. Yeah, I mean, everyone sort of says, oh, where are you flying from, you know? So I'm telling them I've got to go to, from Marba- uh, Melbourne to Barbados, which is through Fiji, LA, Florida, and then Barbados. And they all sort of, you know, first reaction most people was like, oh, that's a long trip. But I, I'm so used to it now and I actually enjoy it. And every year that the team is selected, even if we have a tie sometimes twice in a year, we, we always have to nominate ourselves for each tie. And uh, they, they select the team based on who's made themselves available. So, I mean, yeah, this is, like I said, 19, 20 years in. It's, every time I do get selected, it sort of gives me uh, gives me chills every time. It's such a privilege to actually get out there. For, for us small nations to be able to compete on a world level like this and pretty much one of the most popular sports in the world, uh, you know, it's, it's so exciting for me. I, I love it every year that we get out there. So uh, obviously you're not, not, you've got no intentions of retiring soon? No. <laughs> yeah, I think they even asked uh, Nadal that, and it's like, well, why would I be considering it? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still winning. Uh, I haven't had any um, sort of serious injuries come up uh, in recent years, so I'm, I'm feeling good. I for me, there's no sort of sights on when should I consider stopping i'm just going to keep going until you know that time does come obviously with, with you and with colin you've been around for a while now do you think that the pacific oceana team has sort of like strength and depth is it sort of like young players who are coming through who can take over yeah i mean uh, you know if you do put it in perspective like you're saying you know the, when i when i started playing davis cup all the guys that i played with have pretty much retired i mean they've you know, things have come up in their lives have obviously moved on to um, not just sort of uh, hanging up the racket as such, but having other responsibilities as well. And, you know, at my age, I, I, I would actually hope that there would be a lot more um, the top juniors coming through that are that are really, um, you know, given a good pool of selection for our, for our squad. And it, it hasn't been that way in... Uh, probably the last five to ten years but in recent years now our juniors are starting to come up so it's great to see um you know clement mangi is our young junior he's off in the u.s uh jillian from tahiti is a, another young boy coming through who's playing really well and there's a, quite a few more juniors that are coming up um in the ranks too so i i think the you know it's for the future of of davis cup and the fed cup teams are, are looking pretty good and I believe that you're a businessman uh, on the cooks, and, and also f- you're a family man. How do you manage to uh, basically mix everything up and still manage to play and travel while you've got that business and family thing in back in the cooks? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got six businesses now, so definitely got my fingers in a lot of pies. And, and obviously, um, you know, I've got my wife and two kids, uh, so I definitely do have a lot going on. Um, and I guess just obviously when you get sort of in this depth of business you just got to be very organized with your time so uh you know it just it, it's it's not easy um definitely sort of cuts in a lot into my uh personal family life but it's it's just a choice that i've made these days you know and it's it's what i love and i'm passionate about doing um 
as much as tennis is probably one of my most passionate hobbies, as you could say, or, or career choices. You know, um, business is certainly uh, one of them as well. Clearly, obviously, I've got six businesses. So, um, you know, currently working on uh, building the first five-star resort in Rarotonga and launching a fintech company in the South Pacific. So def- definitely pretty busy as it is. But I manage to find time every day to at least get out there and do some fitness and, and play tennis when I can. The Pacific Oceania team for the Caribbean also includes Colin Sinclair from the Northern Mariana Islands, Clement Mengai from Vanuatu, Julian Osmond from Tahiti and Matavao Fanguna from Tonga. The Davis Cup qualifying round begins on Friday the 3rd of February. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mo mea.